Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at Psalms 113 through 118. I'll explain a bit more why in a few minutes. But the the Psalms are prayers or songs God gives us to express uh, ourselves back to him. Sometimes uh, express our sorrow and sadness, our fear and anxiety. Here, well, here the Psalms are called to praise and gives us various reasons why we could be, well, should be people of praise. So, Psalm 113, page 510. Let's hear the Spirit speak. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, it's in your word that we see light uh, and truth. It is your word that gives us light and truth. And so we pray now that your spirit would take these words and use them to transform us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who you've poured upon your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as 10.28 ticked around to 10.29 this morning, how, how excited did you become? Okay, as the service approached ever closer, and I know in the end it was about 10.34, but as, as the service got closer and closer, did you find yourself sort of shuffling to the edge of your seat, just beginning to, to tense up with excitement, sort of shake and quiver a little bit, licking your lips? Was the energy rising, the excitement building? Were you desperate for everyone to, to sit down so we could just get going? My suspicion is possibly not. And you wouldn't be alone. This psalm is, is a call to praise. Four times in the first couple of verses. The first few verses, we're told to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Verse three, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And then at the end, again, the whole thing ended. Praise the Lord. The, the, the psalmist, whoever wrote this psalm, we're not sure in terms of which human wrote it. Uh, it's obviously written by the Holy Spirit ultimately. But whoever wrote this psalm, you, you get the impression they would have been. They'd have been here on, on time. They'd have, been, they'd have had their coffee. and they'd be, they, they, they just want to burst into praise. Praise for their worship comes naturally, it, it seems. They almost explode. The, the first word, it, it's, it's a Hebrew word that, that you probably know. It's, it's halal. In Hebrew, the word praise is hallel. And if it's praise the Lord, the Lord's name is Yahweh, it says hallelujah. So this psalm literally begins hallelujah. Hallel, O servants of the Lord. Hallel, the name of the Lord. Praise, praise, hallelujah. But, but, but if we're honest, we, we don't feel like that, do, do we? 
whether you call yourself a Christian or not, most of the time we, we don't feel that we're just primed like one of the children, those party poppers, you know, you pull the popper and it explodes into life. Have you ever used one of those at parties? You pull the little string and pop it. We don't feel like that, do we? But when we come to church, or even just on our own when we come before God in our own private worship, we, we don't feel we're just about to explode with excitement and joy in worship. Instead, we quite often have to drag ourselves in. Remember at school, doing kind of cross-country, and you're wearing a kind of, I don't know, rugby shirt, attracted bond, it's rain, you're covered in mud, and you feel like you're carrying a, a load, and coming to, to worship can feel like that at times. Perhaps if church is new to you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it just all seems a bit strange. What's the excitement? What am I missing? Am I missing anything? In, in some spheres of life, we, we are natural worshippers, we, we're natural praisers. Uh, some things do make us just edge forward on our seat. Uh, perhaps it was the, you know, the latest Star Wars movie, the final one of the Skywalker trilogy, and you, you were there at the cinema on time, edge of your seat as the curtains... Oh, they don't do curtains anymore, do they? Showing my age, you know. <laughs> the old days, they used to wind the curtains. As the curtains open and the, duh, duh, the music kicks in and you're just excited. You can't wait to see it. Characters pop up at screen, you turn to your friend and talk about it. Star Wars or Avengers or Marvel, whatever it might be. Or you start a relationship, you, you go out on your first date and you can't wait to get back and talk to your friends about how wonderful she is. Sometimes we are instinctive. You watch the rugby, England pull apart the Irish at rugby and you just can't wait to talk about it, particularly with the Irish. Uh, but with God, it's not often so much, is it? At least not yet. But the, but the commands are clear, aren't they? Praise the Lord. Praise, 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 praise. Time again, praise, praise. Now, why is God commanding us to praise him? Is it that he's, he's, just, he's just a bit insecure and he needs to be told all the time that, that we love him, he's great? As if he's some sort of empty, wrinkled balloon that needs pumping up each Sunday as Christians come and sing songs to him. Well, no, not at all. In one sense, God gains nothing from our praises. He's glorious. He's happy. He doesn't lack anything. He's not needy and insecure like we are. It's not even the case that when he tells us to praise, we do it just because we've been told. I mean, that is true. We should do it because we've been told. But there's more to it than that. When God gives these commands, ultimately, they're not really for his good, but for ours. Uh, These commands, these invitations to praise are are given because it is the best way to, to be. It is for our good, ultimately, uh, not his. We are built to praise. Uh, We're built to to give out glory to another. That's the complete opposite of how we often live, isn't it? We we spend much of our lives trying to seek praise for ourselves, to suck in, like like a sponge. We're desperate to be told we're we're beautiful, or, or we're successful, or we're the shining star in this sort of graduate intake, or we're the best pupil in the class. We're funny. We're special. We're not like anyone else. We're desperate to hear those words of affirmation. We love, in other words, and we seek to receive praise. But, but that ultimately isn't what we're for. That, that, that ultimately won't satisfy us and, and make us kind of explode in joy, with joy, like those party poppers, or like this psalm uh, invites us to we're built to be, to be instruments, as it were, to be trumpets sounding out the praise of something or rather someone greater than us, rather than just sucking in. Uh, you, you may have come across the Narnia stories, C.S. Lewis, 
um, famous children's stories. He wrote another set of stories set in space. They're less well known. Uh, and in one of them, uh, he has a, a, a scene that, that's like the first scene in the Bible. It's like the, the Garden of Eden. And there's the, the woman uh, and the, the kind of Satan figure, the tempter figure comes to, to her. He's called the unman um, because he's trying to sort of destroy her humanity, as it were. And how does he tempt her? Well, children, you know the story of the, the Garden of Eden? What, what does Satan tempt Eve to take? It's fruit, isn't it? Do you remember the tree? Take the, take the fruit from the tree that, that, that's off limits to you. But in C.S. Lewis's story, that the way he tries to corrupt this perfect world and this perfect uh, woman is, is by trying to, to give her a mirror. It's really clever. What, what's he trying to do? He's trying to stop her being someone who in this paradise world, this perfect sort of sinless, spotless world, someone who at the moment is, is giving praise to the, the God character, and instead start looking at herself, to, to curb in on herself, as it were. And, and that, it's, it's, a, it's a great description of what we're like, isn't it? We're far more interested in receiving praise than giving praise. And yet still we're not satisfied. Still life isn't quite the explosion of joy that, that seems to be reflected uh, in this song. Uh, why? Well, because we're designed to praise God. If everything is in fact, if you look down at verse 2, small number 2 there, uh, the praise of the Lord is meant to last from this time forth and forevermore. God's praise is meant to be eternal. It'll never cease, uh, never run out. Or verse 3, it's from uh, the rising of the sun to its setting. Every corner of the earth, as the sun rises in, where does it start? New Zealand, is it? Uh, wakes up the, 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 the church in New Zealand, they start to praise God and it moves across Australia and sort of Asia and the next wave wake up and worship and across Eastern Europe and then eventually it wakes us up in the UK, we begin to, to worship God and then it moves on and the Americans finally wake up and they praise God and, and round it goes. The, the idea is that God's praise is meant to be everywhere and every when, as it were, everlasting. But how can that be? Or rather, how can we join the psalmist with that exuberant excitement? Praise, praise, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, what he, the writer points us in two directions. In verses four to six, he makes us look up. And then in verses seven to nine, he makes us look down. So, so we need to look up first. And in verses four to six, he, he's basically saying to us, you'll never worship what you don't wonder at. You'll never worship something that, or someone that you don't realise and think of is utterly glorious and above you. We get excited about things that are beyond us, that amaze us, not things we can understand. When people, it seems to be a fashion, doesn't it, of taking pictures of their meals at the moment. No one ever Instagrams or whatever, they're kind of jacket potato and beans. That's not exciting, really. Fancy restaurant, okay, it's all over the social media, isn't it? No one ever takes a selfie of themselves at Leeds bus station. Check out where I am, guys. But you go to the Alps or the Grand Canyon, wow. In verses four to six, the, the writer is trying to make us realise the style, the scale, the immensity of God. In some ways, he's saying that we're all worshippers. The problem is we, we, we're setting our sights too low. Until you realise how huge God is, how mighty, majestic he is, your heart will never sing out. You'll never be drawn into this orchestra of praise that the universe and us and we are created to be. 
As I said earlier, we are all worshippers one way or another. You might not think of yourself as a religious person, but we're all religious in one sense. You might not believe in a sort of God out there, but you live for something. Something drives your life. And the problem is we set our sights too low. A few weeks ago, I watched a film. Uh, it's called The Edge. Uh, and it's about, it's about the rise of the English cricket team to number one in the world. Okay? It's a cracker, I promise. It's a documentary. It's on Amazon Prime. It's there for free if you want to rush home afterwards. And as the film begins, it tells a story. And the film begins, it's about 2007 or something like that. And England is rubbish. They're getting thrashed by everybody taken apart they're all time low and you know there's scenes of the dressing room and they're all slumped and and the, the film is being it's because it's a documentary it's being made about probably about a year or two ago with, with the team reflecting on the journey that eventually did take them to number one so they talk about going on these SAS training camps okay, these fitness camps where they suddenly got to be the fittest team in the world they talk about the psychologists who came in to help them train uh, train their minds to get the right the right mindset they talk about dropping people from the team who, who won't fully commit to it and, it, you know, if you're interested in cricket, it's an interesting journey. But what's really fascinating about it is, is that they make it. Uh, and th- they finally become the number one team in the world. Uh, and the film shows the, the moment it happens. They're on the field, on the, on the, the cricket field, and they've just beaten India. And the, the head of the World Cricket Association, ICC, comes and gives them this big, whacking great gold mace. Which, have you ever seen a mace? Like a massive stick sort of thing like the Queen has. Um, and that's their... They, they're world champions, and you look, and what you see is exactly what you'd expect. Uh, like any team that wins a championship, they've got their arms around each other, bouncing up and down, they're spraying champagne, they're smiling. And I think it was about 2011. The, but, but the director has intercut the scenes of the bouncing around with joy with interviews uh, with the, the, the people in the, the team. The captain, Andrew Strauss, said this. Holding that mace to show we're number one in the world, it was a bit of an anticlimax. And then he pauses. And he says, Is this it? The, the film at the time is showing him bouncing around, seemingly full of joy, smiling. But on the inside, he was thinking, Is this it? One of the team comes from Yorkshire, a guy called Tim Bresman, suitably blunt. He just swears and then says, Now what? They've achieved it. Number one in the world. Conquered everything. Swears, now what? They both realised it wasn't enough. They were world champions. But it wasn't enough. In some ways, maybe they're the lucky ones. They've realised that. We live our lives for these earthly goals. We seek to get all this praise. They were adored. They were championed. They're on the front of the magazines, the front of the newspapers. And yet, is that it? And many of us in the room are young. And perhaps it's a particular danger for, for, for the young. I'm just, I've just hit the age where I think I officially count as middle-aged now. And it, the, 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 it's a real danger that, that, that when you're young, you, you're constantly thinking, well, as long as I work towards this goal, then when, that, when I achieve that goal, then everything will be great. Then I'll explode in praise. Then everything will be wonderful. I just need to get that job or, or just... just just, just, just get married and then everything will be wonderful. Or when I have kids, everything will be wonderful. Or my career kicks in or I get the house. That they'll bring the deep joy. And it's always just around the corner. And so we keep going because we think it's about to come. 
but it doesn't. We keep chasing, chasing the wind. Even the Christian realised it, or at least these two did. Maybe some of you have realised that as well. You've got your dreams, married the girl, the gorgeous guy, and three years into marriage or whatever have realised they're not as amazing as I thought. My praise for them, my wonder at them, has sort of worn out. I've got the job, the job I worked so hard for, and it's all right. The things we give ourselves to, to live for, to worship, are too small. Back to the psalm, verses 4 through 6. What is the God who calls us to worship him like? He's high above all nations. Imagine the United Nations, the heads, you know, Trump and Johnson and Merkel and all the world leaders together. God will be enthroned above them. He's high above the earth. He's even high, do you see, above the heavens. His glory is above the heavens, verse 4. So high, he's seated so high, verse 5, that he has to look down on the heavens and the earth. He has to look down to sort of spot the, 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 the stars, the sun, the moon. You know, the way you look down and try, is that a little bit of mud on the floor, is it? I can't quite see. He has to do that to spot the sun. The sun and the moon and the, the plants, are like little sort of marbles running across the floor of his throne room. They are tiny compared to him. Uh, this is a God, in other words, who you won't get bored of, who can, who can take your breath away, who will never exhaust. A God who is majestic beyond belief. A God who is so vast that if you think you've understood him, it's, it's not the God of the Bible that you've understood. Down the centuries, people have sort of made those sort of comments in different ways. If you think you've under- fully understood the God of the Bible, it's not the God of the Bible you've understood. He is ultimately, his greatness is unfathomable, to quote one of the other Psalms. And we won't worship, we won't burst into sort of hallelujahs until we see this. His majesty, his size. Isaiah says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? If I want to, if I want to measure you know, how wide the, my phone is or whatever. I can just put, put my hand out. Oh, it looks, it's, what's that, about four or five inches? God can do that with a, the universe. Ah, there we go. He can measure it with the breadth of his hand. He is vast beyond belief. Uh, this is the lesson Job has to learn. Uh, when Job complains to God about how he's being treated, God comes to him in a whirlwind and just says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined the measurements of the earth? Surely you know. Uh, Who shut the sea in with doors? Uh, Were you there when I made the clouds, uh, the garments of the sky? Have you commanded the morning since your days began, caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the springs of the sea, walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? On and on he goes. Can you throw... Thunder and lightning across the heavens. Can you pick up the great sea creatures as if they're just little sort of puppies? Job, you have no idea the majesty, uh, the might that is in my hands, says God. And the problem is we, we shrink God. We, we, don't want, we, don't, we don't burst into worship because he is just so small in our eyes. Uh, at Christmas, growing up every every year, my mum would get out this, um, as part of the Christmas decorations, um, a, a little nativity set. They're called Santons. I think they come from France. Uh, little shepherds, a little wise men, and a little sheep, little Joseph, little Mary, and a little Jesus. A little Santon Jesus, about that big. 
cute in this little yellow cot. And he was tiny. And actually, it's, <laughs> that's part of our, that's the attitude of our hearts. God is just not as grand. We don't see him as clearly as we should. He's become a little Santon God, a little tiny Jesus. And it works both ways. We won't worship him until we see his size, but I think it's also fair to say until we worship him rightly, we won't see the size. The, the, the way we worship God changes our view of him. It's in worship, particularly as we gather together, we get a glimpse of, of what God is like. But, but even in the, the church that, that honours the Bible, church that honours the Bible, very often we downplay worship, this gathering of the church together. Uh, why do we come this morning? Well, Psalm says, praise. We came here to praise. Praise, praise, praise. And let me tell you some more about God and then praise. But we, we, what do we want? If you, if you ask, often if you ask people, what do you want from a church service? Or, or perhaps someone goes along to a church service. And you, what was good about it? Oh, it was so chilled out. It was amazing. So relaxed. It was really funny. Okay. I'm not going to get that this morning, I'm afraid. Or for other people, oh, I learnt loads. Yeah, really clear, learn loads. And education becomes our form of entertainment. But when people in the Bible experience God directly, as it were, men like Isaiah, who get, as it were, sort of pulled up into the heavens and see God on his throne, what's their reaction? Oh, this is great fun. I say chilled out, love it. They fall on their face. The grandeur, the majesty of the God they're encountering. I was out of the stop for donuts and coffee, or he is blown away by the scale of God. Trivial worship leads to a trivial view of, of God. A little Santon Jesus, a little lightweight God. Lightweight worship leads to a lightweight God. It, it matters what we do as we gather as his people Sunday by Sunday. It's part of the reasons we, we've been trying to sing the Psalms. God has written 150 songs for us, 150 prayers. Now, I suspect, because this is my story as well, I suspect that many of you, even if you're used to coming to church, coming to church for years, find it odd when, for example, earlier on in the service, we read a psalm. It doesn't feel, you know, it's not spontaneous and spiritual, is it? It's, why are we reading? Or when we sing psalms, it's a bit weird. The language of the psalms, I don't really understand them. They're a bit strange. They're a bit heavy. They're a bit... What we've got to ask ourselves is this. God has written 150 songs and prayers. It, it, if, if, if they don't feel right, if I much, 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 much prefer the stuff that's written, you know, by Hillsong and, and modern artists, then, then where's the problem? Is it with the Psalms or is it with me? So, you know, we're trying to persuade our children at the moment to eat vegetables. Okay, when they, when they don't eat their carrots and their peas and the broccoli, where's the problem? Is the problem with the broccoli and the peas and the carrots or with them, with their taste buds? It's with them. They don't believe it, but it is. <laughs> Carrots and broccoli, that's good for them. They just haven't realised it yet. They think what's good for them is chocolate. Part of the reason that we're given these psalms, like Psalm 113, to, to lead, they give us the words to, to pray back to God, to sing to him in praise. Like the Bible isn't just top down. It doesn't just tell us stuff about God. God speaking downwards, he also gives us the words and the prayers to sing back to him. It's not, of course, that we don't pray in our own words at other times. Of course we do. But, but our spiritual life, our spirituality, our songs and our prayers, well, ideally, they're meant to be like the Psalms at the very least. 
If there's a huge gap between the prayers God wrote for men and women to pray to him and the prayers we actually say, the songs that God wrote for us to sing to him and the songs we actually sing, the, the problems with the songs and the prayers we sing and pray are not with the ones God wrote. How we worship matters. And in part, these psalms are given to lift our view of God, to realise how vast he is. We'll only worship when we wonder at his size and scale. And yet the psalm doesn't end there, does it? As, as we close, you see, it doesn't, it doesn't finish at the end of verse 6. It doesn't leave us at the bottom of the mountain looking up at this huge, majestic God. In, in verses 7 to 9, we, well, we follow him on a journey. What does God do? This mighty God who sits enthroned in the heavens. What does he do? He reaches down and raises up. Raises up who? Do you see? Verse 7 through 9. He raises up not the kings and the prime ministers and the presidents. Not the strongest warriors, the heroes, the superstars, the rich, the wealthy. He raises up, verse 7, the poor from the dust. Those who have got nothing, God lifts up. The needy from the ash heap, or in some translations, the dung heap. Those who can't even, they don't even live inside. They're living on the refuse, the dump of the city. And God bends and lifts them up. Verse 9, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children, particularly in the days of the Old Testament. To, uh, to be a woman who was unmarried and without children was to be incredibly vulnerable. It wasn't the sort of day of men and women off to work, equal, all that sort of stuff. So to be a single woman with no children made you incredibly vulnerable. God reaches down and gives her a home. All other gods tell you to climb the mountain. Work hard enough and you might become a partner in the law firm, a consultant in the hospital. Work hard enough, you'll pass your A-levels. You pull yourself up and you might achieve. You might get the money to buy the house to achieve the dream, to lose weight, get beautiful. You might be able to bag the, the wife you dream of or the husband you dream of. Try hard, climb the mountain, maybe you'll achieve your dreams. This God, he doesn't even just invite you up, he lifts you up. He has a particular care for those who are vulnerable. We see that theme throughout the Bible. But, but spiritually, as it were, we're all bankrupt, we're all poor, we're all destitute. We're all living in the ash heap, the dung heap, the dust. When death comes for us, way down as we are with our sin, we have no currency no money in our pockets to pay our way in how are we ever going to live in glory well only if he lifts us up now these psalms the reason we're doing them at the moment is psalm 113 through 118 they're known as the halal psalms or the egyptian halal psalms they're the psalms that particularly have been associated in, in, in judaism with celebrating the passover uh, the passover was the great salvation of the old testament when, when god rescued uh, his people, the, the Israelites, out of Egypt from slavery and into the promised land. And he did so, the sort of climactic act, as it were, was when the, the angel, he sent his angel to move through Egypt and every firstborn son was going to die. And the only way the Israelites escaped was by sacrificing a lamb, painting the blood over the doors. And so when the angel came to that house, he saw the blood and passed over it. They escaped. And every year afterwards, they celebrated a Passover meal. They would get together uh, they'd eat some lamb, some bread. Some... And these psalms, 113 through 118, are the songs they sang, sing to this day, at the Passover meal. That means these are the songs that Jesus sang the night before he went to the cross. These are the last songs of Jesus. 
in the Gospels, if you read the accounts of the Last Supper, it talks about Jesus and the disciples singing, uh, singing the hymns. Uh, it, it's all, but it doesn't name them, it doesn't say Psalm 113 through 18, the Bible doesn't really talk like that anyway. But, but it's all but certain these will be the songs they sang. So, so imagine that Last Supper. Okay, imagine you're Peter or John sat at the table and you're singing Psalm 113 and you get to verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, seated on high and yet comes down to lift up the needy? How do you answer the question, who is like that? What's the answer? It's him. It's the man sat next to me at the end of the table. Jesus Christ, God's own son who's become man who has come down in order to lift us up. It's not that God just sort of reaches down this mighty hand out of heaven and sort of picks people up. That wouldn't work. He needed to do more. He needed to come lower. Imagine the angels hearing this song when it was sung before Jesus. Who knows when it was written, but say a thousand years before Jesus. They first hear that that God is going to have to raise us up if anyone's going to enter the heavenly realms. And the angels say, how low are you going to have to go? And, and Jesus, the son of God, says, well, I, I need to go down. And they say, well, like, like you did when you stood on Mount Sinai and taught people how to live. And Jesus says, no, lower. I need to go lower. Well, like you walked in the Garden of Eden or, or with Abraham. Uh, like the times you appeared as the angel of the Lord and seemed to walk among your people. And Jesus says, no, lower. And one of the angels dares to say, well, you're, you're going to become one of them. You're going to become a man, a, a king among them, an emperor. And Jesus says, no, lower. And the angels don't dare to say anything else. And so the Son of God explains, I've become not just, not just a man, but a man from a despised race in, in a backwater of the, emperor, of the empire. I've become not a king, but a carpenter's son. I'm going to become even lower than that, not just a teacher. I'm going to go lower and lower and lower. I'm so low that I'll go down to death in their place, stripped naked, humiliated, crucified, bearing their sins, their dirt, the dung from their lives, spiritually speaking. I'll go down lower and lower into the grave in order that I might then lift them up to glory with me. The Son of God has come down to earth to lift you to glory. He doesn't tell you to sort your life out. He doesn't say you can come in if he stoops and lifts. If the archangel Gabriel or Michael, these glorious angels we meet in the Bible, if they had become earthworms, that would have been a small thing compared to the Son of God becoming man. And he did so to lift you up. Where are you headed? You're to sit with princes. In verse 7, you see he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy up. That word lifting us up. In verse 7 is the same word used in verse 4 of, of God sitting on high. In other words, we lift it up to sit with God. Or in verse 8, we sit. Where do we sit? Well, with the princes. Who's sitting in verse 5? God. We were sitting in those heavenly realms. It's why in Ephesians, Paul says that when Jesus saved us, he seated us, or God rather, seated us with Jesus in the heavenly realms. If you're a Christian, you are already sat in heaven. How does that work? I don't know. What does it mean? I don't really know. You say, well, I'm sat in, Dar- I'm sat in Leeds. Sorry, not Darby. I'm sat in Leeds. I'm not sat in the heavenly realms. And Paul says, well, you, you are, spiritually speaking. You're in Christ. You're sat in the heavenly realms. You're on the heights already. He's already lifted you up. I don't know what it means exactly, 
but I, I understand the picture. But if you're a Christian, if you come to him and say, yes, I want you, I believe in you, that you have descended to pay for my sin into the depths of death in order to lift me up again, it's as if you're already sat there safe and one day the experience of your life will catch up. What that means is when we look up to see the God of glory, we look on high, we see not just God but ourselves. Several times in the New Testament we're told to look up. They fix our, our eyes on the things above. And it's only then that you're worshipped. If we only look up, as it were, to the, up to, the, to the heavens and think, well, there is a God who's majestic and powerful and mighty, we, we, we might just sort of shrink away. He's up there, I'm down here. He's mighty and majestic and maybe, maybe, he, maybe I won't make it. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe what we need to do, this psalm drives us to do, is to look up, and see the mighty God who has come down and then carried us back up. Look up to the heavens and see ourselves safe, secure. And then we'll worship. Then we'll praise. Because he is not a God to be feared and, f- and, and fled. He is a God who in such love has become one of us into the dunghill to raise us up. At his stooping low, his humiliation... It's not, that doesn't undermine his power. It's the coming low that shows his power. When we see how low Jesus goes, that reveals to us how powerful he is. They're not opposites. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, became man shows his power. Can you do that? Can you remain everything you are, a human being, and also become a hamster? No, you haven't got the power. But so mighty is God that he can remain fully God and yet become man too at the same time. It shows his power, his, his lowliness shows his power. But it also shows his love and his desire. It's not just that he can do it, it's that he would do it. So when we look at Jesus in the lowest of the lows, crucified, buried, we see his power and his love that he would do that in order that you might be raised up to glory, to sit with princes, to be lifted from the ash heap. So when he invites you to praise him, it's a gift. That is where he's taking you. One day it will come naturally when Christ returns or we go to glory. It will come naturally. At the moment, your life may be a dunghill, honestly. Sometimes you will be in the ash heap. You'll feel that you are dust. But one day your experience will match the reality, will be swept up into this never-ending river of praise. Alleluia, alleluia will come from our lips. Uh, From shore to shore, from everlasting to everlasting, we will be people of praise. And so the call of the psalm is to live by faith now what one day will be reality, to see that we already sat safe in the heavenly realms. God has done everything for us. And therefore the best thing we can do not just the right thing, but the best thing we can do to live lives of joy, exuberance, to become those, those party poppers, as it were, is to praise. That's why the psalm finishes where it finishes. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are desperately heavy and dragged down. We see what we should be and we look at our lives and realise we're far from it. And so we praise that you are God who is mighty in power and has used that power to come low in order to lift us up. We praise you, you don't just bellow at us from the heavens, but you've come down among us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ.
Uh, We praise you that he descended to the depths, uh, even to the grave, in order that uh, our destiny, our future, might not be to return to dust and ashes, but might be to be raised up to glory. Give us, we pray, faith to see that he has done everything, that spiritually we already sat in the heavenly realms, and therefore warm our hearts, we praise, that we become people who praise, uh, people who delight to come before you in worship, people who are excited to declare how great our God is. Pour your spirit on us, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.